Um, let's stand at reverence to the river of the Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And normally what I do is I actually will read, I'm going to cut this, uh, we're going to stop at, I'm going to stop preaching from, at verse 26. Normally I would go all the way through to the end of the passage, but I'm going to, I'm actually going to stop reading um, at verse 26 because I want this to be a bit of a cliffhanger. Okay, we, we know how it turns out. Spoiler, don't, don't, uh, don't tell anybody if you, if you've read ahead and you know, but um, I want, I really want to, I w- we got a, I think, missing child. Okay. We look out of the pews. Nope. Okay. And we got an extra kid at their in their pew. Is it is it Ender? Elsa. I didn't see her go out the door. Okay, maybe somebody could could uh, could give him a hand there, please. Okay, all right. Um, Acts chapter twenty-seven, verses one to twenty-six. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship from Adamitium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. I found Elsa. She's actually right here. Right there. Okay, I just felt something under my, under my foot. Okay, there we go. That's a first and hopefully a last. Okay. Verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that it would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear. And thus, they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. We must run aground on some island. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, we praise you for the ways that you demonstrated your faithfulness to the Apostle Paul. You were faithful to your promise to bring him to Rome and before Caesar. And we thank you, Father, for the way that he had confidence in your ability to do that which you had promised. As he knew that you were the sovereign of the storm. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to recognize that You were also sovereign over the storms of our lives. Help us, Lord, to look even in the midst of the storm, to look not at our circumstances, but to fix our eyes firmly on you. And help us, I pray, Lord, to have peace in the middle of the storm, that you will accomplish your will for us, that you will bring us safely home, not necessarily safe from the storm, but you'll bring us safe through the storm to be with you forever in eternity. For we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. People are fascinated by stories of peril on the high seas. It's really nothing new. It's been the case for millennia. The oldest known novel is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written about 4,000 years ago and is likely inspired by the account of Noah and the flood. The the tale of the shipwrecked sailor is almost as old, and and you're probably familiar with Homer's Odyssey, which is about 2,700 years old. More recently, we have books like Robinson Crusoe and and Moby Dick and and Our Day, A Night to Remember, that recounts the sinking of the Titanic. And The Perfect Storm, which is about a fishing boat in the storm of a century with waves that were over 100 feet high. It's become a major motion picture. In fact, almost all of these more modern novels have made... Have, have had Hollywood adaptations made about them, and some of them are, are better than, other, than others, but none are as good as the books. The scriptures also recount narratives on the high seas, and no sea obviously higher than the seas of the global, global flood. And most of us shudder at the thought of, of Jonah being tossed overboard in the middle of a storm and being swallowed by the giant fish. But Paul's maritime disaster in Acts 27 writes, uh, ranks right up there with the other two. Well, maybe not in, in scale, certainly in peril and suspense. Paul encountered his own perfect storm. There are a few other places on earth where one 
feels as vulnerable as they do on the open seas. Adrift on a boat that, that feels so tiny and so powerless when you're subject to the forces of nature out on the ocean, wind and waves. And it's Sebastian Younger who writes in the aforementioned novel, The Perfect Storm, a true story of men against the sea. He writes, unfortunately for mariners, the total amount of wave energy and storm does not rise linearly with wind speed, but to its fourth power. The seas generated by a 40-knot wind aren't twice as violent as those from a 20-knot wind. They are 17 times as violent. The ship's crew watching the anemometer climb even 10 knots could well be watching their death sentence. But thankfully, the Apostle Paul knew that this storm that he experienced on the Mediterranean Sea was not his death sentence, but the others on board that ship, perhaps all of them, maybe with the exception of, of Luke's co-missionaries were terrified, and understandably so. Now, I experienced rough seas a couple of times on, on boats, once on a, a liveaboard dive ship, a dive boat that we were at night. It was at night. We were far from shore. The, the waves left me leaning on the gunnels for support and, and leaning over the gunnels to do something else. I had never... I was never really in any, any major danger, but let me tell you, I was more than happy to set my feet back on terra firma when we got to shore. But you don't need to experience a storm at sea to feel like you're lost at sea or in danger of a shipwreck. We've all felt the storms of life at varying degrees. And that, I think, is, is, is one of the deeper reasons why we're, we're drawn to stories of peril at the, on, the, on the sea. Because these storms provide a metaphor for us of the storms of life. The passage that's before us really provides no exception. This passage draws us into the experience of the Apostle Paul and his shipmates. And, and this passage is outstanding for its, its technical and its nautical details as Luke uses terms clearly describing shipping techniques that were common in Paul's day. You can feel the tension as the, the ship is, is tossed on the storm. You almost feel the need to, to grab some seasickness pills as you read the passage. But the danger for us in this storm comes not from the storm itself, but from our interpretation of the storm and others like it through bad theology. There are two common and related unbiblical interpretations that are exposed in, in some of us when looking at a passage like this. The first bad theology is to use a passage like this one as a promise that the Lord will spare us from some particular Calamity or trial. Right? This, is, this is a narrative describing what happened. It cannot be applied generally. Sorry, it can only be applied generally as we see God's character. But it's not a personal promise for, for deliverance from every trial. We'll talk about this later on. The second bad theology is to draw the conclusion that a trial means that God is somehow punishing someone whether you or even worse, someone else. The storm did not come because Paul was sinning. It came because Paul was being faithful. Remember, over the last several passages, judge after judge after judge has said that Paul is innocent. 
And then we're now finishing the cycle of Paul's repeated trials where, remember, we saw Lysias, the, the Roman tribune, and, and Felix and Festus, the Roman governors, and Grippa, the Jew, a Jewish king, all confirming that Paul was innocent. But now Paul's going to experience a different kind of trial. And once again, the verdict is innocent. Now creation will testify that Paul is innocent as the Lord delivers him not from the storm, but through the storm. This is not Paul's Mediterranean cruise. This is Paul's missionary journey. God is using this storm to get Paul exactly where he wants him to be, exactly when he wants him to be there. Acts 27 has seven scenes, so this is really going to be a, a seven-part sermon. But as I said earlier, I'm going to divide this in two. We'll only get as far as verse 26 today, but we'll do the, the, the first four points. Verses 1 to 5, we'll see Caesarea to Myra. And then verses 6 to 12, aboard the wheat ship. And then the storm in verses 13 to 20. And then in verses 21 to 26, Paul's prophecy, which is really the, the central passage a central passage of this, of this narrative. So let's watch how the Lord delivers Paul through the storm. Verses 1 to 5, Caesarea to Myra. So after Paul's final trial before King Agrippa, the verdict was again that he had done nothing wrong, that he, had, he was innocent, that he'd done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. But the sentence, however, was the same. Paul was sent to Rome for another trial before Caesar. Agrippa asserted this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. However, Paul only did this, as we know from the, the context, Paul only appealed to Caesar in order to avoid being sent back to Jerusalem, which would have led to his, his ex execution, if not his murder, at the hand of the Jews. Providentially, Paul's appeal to Caesar and the coming storm were the means whereby he reaches his destination. Luke begins. When it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, notice that the second person pronoun, we. Luke is now traveling once again with Paul, along with another fellow missionary, Aristarchus, and we'll talk about him more in a moment. So they were to set sail from the port of Caesarea, northwest, rather, yeah, northwest along the along the Mediterranean Sea for about a distance of three thousand kilometers. This usually this this journey would only take a few weeks, but this trial is going to take months. It's it's now late summer, most likely of the year A.D. fifty-nine. The Romans handed Paul and some other. Prisoners over to a centurion were told of the Augustan cohort. We're told the man's name was Julius. Now, imperial soldiers were not usually involved in prisoner transport, and so Julius was likely from an auxiliary unit. And in fact, the Augustan cohort referred to a group of Samaritan soldiers from the town of Sebasti, and they were stationed in Caesarea. And given his name, Julius, this centurion was most likely a man who had been a former slave, who had been granted Roman citizenship, likely by Julius Caesar himself. And so he took the name Julius after Julius Caesar. 
And so think about, again, the Apostle Paul, who we've been told repeatedly is a, a Roman citizen. And, and so this hints at the fact that, that maybe as a, as a fellow citizen to another, some of the kindness that Julius exhibits towards, uh, towards Paul, we're, we're seeing that in God's providence, this is where it comes from. So they started their journey by boarding a ship from Adramitium, which is in, in modern Turkey. Now this, this ship would have actually been a, a smaller boat, uh, uh, which was known as a coaster. We learned about that back in, in chapter uh, 21. This, this would have been a, a small commercial boat that would have traveled along the coast, hugging the coastline. It would, would not have been able to, to take big trips uh, across the open sea, except for perhaps short hops. The, naval, the Romans did not have naval, ship, naval ships of, of, of this kind for, for transport at, at this time, so they would have commissioned th this boat for this purpose. Remember that Paul, two and a half years earlier, had taken a, a similar boat in the opposite direction on his way to Jerusalem. And that trip had resulted in his imprisonment, first with the Jews and then with the Romans. Paul had traveled along this in a, in a similar craft. And again, he'd, he'd hugged the coast on that trip and it had taken a much shorter period of time. But now they're going, now they had to really, if you don't think about sailing, they had to tack with the wind because the wind was actually uh, heading in the opposite direction. Luke tells us here that Aristarchus came with them. And Aristarchus, you, you may remember, was one of Paul's missionary companions. Aristarchus was was in Ephesus along with Gaius, was dragged into the theater during the, the riot uh, from, the, from the Jews. And later on, Aristarchus will be dragged into prison with Paul, as Paul will mention him by name in his prison epistles in uh, Colossians and Philemon. Their first leg of their journey took them directly north, directly north from Caesarea to Sidon, 100 kilometers away. Now this area of Tyre and Sidon had been evangelized by Christians fleeing the persecution that arose after the martyrdom of Stephen. We're told here that Julius treated Paul kindly. The word that's used here is actually philanthropos, from which we get our word philanthropy. And Julius allowed Paul, we're told, to be cared for by his friends who were in the area. And so he, so Paul went to visit the Christians in, in this, this city, in, in Sidon, and probably, very likely, with Roman escort. And then from Sidon, they, they set sail again and traveled along the eastern side of Cyprus because of the contrary winds that were now coming, for, that were coming from the west. And so then they eventually reached Myra on the southern tip of Asia Minor. It's about a further uh, 800 kilometers further. Verses 6 to 12, Paul now boards the wheat ship. So now the centurion booked passage for himself and for the, the, the prisoners, including Paul and, and Luke and Aristarchus, on a ship from Alexandria that was sailing for Italy. Now it was very common in that period for wheat ships to travel from the, the, the grain belt at the Nile Delta, which is where Alexandria was, it would travel straight north to Myra. And, and Luke will indeed say later on that this ship's cargo was actually wheat. And so what would happen is, is these, these ships would, would travel from Alexandria and they, they would travel straight north to Myra and then west along the, the coast to um, all the way straight to Rome. Now these ships were, were very large ships. There are written accounts of, of such ships being 
over 180 feet long and 45 feet wide. The historian Josephus records being shipwrecked on, on such, from such a ship with 600 people on board, a very large ship. This is contrary to those who say that, that these kinds of ships didn't exist. That's simply just not true. The, the journey from Myra to Snidus, which was another further 200 kilometers along, was, was slow and hard. Again, because of the contrary winds. And again, as with the wind pointed in their faces, some would conclude wrongly that this was not God's will for Paul to make this journey. They would, they would wrongly conclude that, that because the wind was at their face, that, that God didn't want them to go there. This was not God's plan. But the contrary wind does not mean that this trip is contrary to God's will. There could be, and there are clearly in this case, other reasons for the contrary wind. Now this trip really, this part of the trip really only should have taken a couple of days, given that with favorable winds, that these ships usually traveled around around six knots, around four kilometers an hour. A large ship like this could make the journey from Alexandria all the way to Rome in less than two weeks. But a headwind, as they had now, could slow the journey down to around a month and a half, 45 days. But this trip is going to take a lot longer than that, as we'll see. Continuing to inch their way along, they finally came to a place ironically called the Fair Havens. This was a, a sheltered harbor. And they were now well past what was considered to be the, the safe season for sailing. The fast here refers to Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement, which was now past. The Yom Kippur usually falls in late September or early October, but in this year, in AD 59, Yom Kippur fell on October 5th. Now, the period for safe travel on the Mediterranean usually ran from mid-September, sorry, for, for unsafe travel, ended on September 15th and ran all the way to November the 11th. Until maritime travel on the Mediterranean ceased altogether all the way until March, until the spring. And so Paul and his companions on board this ship were now smack dab in the middle of of, of what was considered to be uh, among the most dangerous times to be on the Mediterranean. So if you're ever booking a Mediterranean cruise, don't book it in October. Paul's determination was that they should, should stay there in the Fair Havens. He said, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo of the ship, but also to our lives. Now, I had often... When I, when I read this, I'd assumed that Paul was speaking prophetically here. But, but there's a problem with that. Because when Paul very clearly does receive prophecy from the Lord, it's contrary to this. And as we know that, 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 the, that no prophecy of, of God is, is contrary to other prophecies of God. And so what we very likely have here is, is not prophecy, but, but Paul's wisdom as a, a very seasoned ship traveler himself. He's, he's covered thousands of kilometers on this stretch of water, and he knows that this was not the time of year to be doing it. So he said, hey guys, we're, we're better off according to, to, to what I understand of, the, of, of this body of water. We really need to stay put. And it really shows that, that Paul is not a, a normal 
uh, prisoner, even in the way that he's able to now communicate with the centurion and to offer advice. But the centurion, and, and perhaps not unwisely, says, okay, well, I've got the word of Paul, who may, may really know what he's talking about, but I'm going to actually, instead, he's going to go with the advice of the owner of the ship and the pilot. Now, the pilot was the, 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 the one who was responsible to, to run the, the tiller. He was the, he was the one who, who directed the ship. He said, look, Paul might be seasoned traveler, but these guys are seasoned sailors. I'm going to listen to them. As Dennis Johnson says, Paul had no doubt that he himself would reach Rome. For neither high winds nor ocean depths could thwart Jesus' purpose. Again, I remember the Lord's promise to Paul in, in Acts 23 that he would bear witness of Christ in Rome. And, and the earlier promise um, in chapter 19 that the Holy Spirit said he would testify in Rome. But, Johnson continues, Paul also wanted to spare those around him harm and loss. To the end that he offered his best wisdom to the shipboard community to which he now belonged. But ill-advisedly, the centurion headed, heeded the counsel of the ship's pilot and the owner did not believe that it was suitable for them to, to anchor here in the Fair Havens. They wanted to press on to Phoenix. To Phoenix. You hear that, Phoenix? Not only another 80 kilometers, it was only another 80 kilometers further. And so it really seems like, okay, look, if the winds are favorable, let's just, let's just track this, this next. It really only should take uh, another day or less than a day to get there. there was a, the, the sailors knew the area and they said there's a better harbor that faces southwest and northwest. Then in verses 13 to 20, the storm hit. At first, things seemed to go well. They had a, a gentle southerly wind, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the island of Crete, again hugging the shore. And I can imagine the centurion saying to Paul, see, I told you there's nothing to worry about. Until. Until they were crossing the Gulf of Masara to Phoenix when the storm was unleashed. We're told it was a tempestuous wind. The, the word that's used here is the Greek word from which we get the word typhoon. It was a nor'easter, the most feared of all winds, rushing down from the 8,000-foot Mount Ida. And the wind blew southward, it blew the ship southward away from the shelter of land. And the ship couldn't face the wind. It literally says that the, the, it, the ship could not look at the wind eye to eye. And so their only choice was to give way to the wind and let themselves be driven along. Forty kilometers away, along the lee of the small island of Kana, they managed to secure the lifeboat, which at that point, as you can imagine, would have been swamped with water. And here they used, in the little bit of calm they had, they used supports to undergird the ship, most likely a, a practice known as frapping, which was running Running, running cables or ropes under the ship several times in order to strengthen the hull. But they continued to be driven along by the wind. And they were fearful that they would run aground on an area called the Sirtis. This was a, a dangerous stretch along the African coast, which was known to be a graveyard for sunken ships. There were sandbars there that were notorious for bringing ships to the bottom of the sea. And so here they lowered the gear. This most likely refers to, to their anchors in an attempt to slow themselves down. They were beginning to get desperate. Then they began to jettison cargo in, 
in an effort to, to make the ship be, to be lighter and to sit higher on the water. The desperation only grew. Now they began to throw the, the ship's tackle. This was, was the ropes and pulleys on board. They're doing everything they could to lighten the ship and to keep it from sinking. We're told that for two weeks they saw neither sun nor stars. So they had no means of navigation. They had no idea where they were. And they, they couldn't tell relative to the waves. They, they had no idea how, how far along they had traveled. They were lost at sea. And then and there's that word again. This was no small tempest. This was a typhoon. Shakespeare aptly describes such a tempest in his play that's called The Tempest. He says, Weak masters, though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun and called forth the mutinous winds and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war to the dread rattling thunder. And all on, the, on board the ship are left completely hopeless. That is all except Paul and possibly his companions, Luke and Aristarchus. But now we come to verses 21 to 26, to Paul's prophecy, which again is the, the central passage of, of this narrative. Luke tells us that they were without food, that they were fasting. It, it may be that the, the ship's tossing and, and turning prevented the cooks on board for the ship from being able to, to prepare food for them, or, or very likely means they, they, the ship was so, was so storm-tossed they couldn't keep any food down, or they had no appetite through anxiety, even though there was food on board. And then Paul speaks. We're not told here that Paul cries out to God to miraculously still the storm. And he might have done this, but Paul stood up to encourage them. To encourage them. And this, this idea of encouragement is, is, is really the major theme for the remainder of the passage. Paul's message of hope shines like a lighthouse in face of the rocks of despair. Now in, in Roman culture... The Gentiles, as they were, would have judged a philosopher based on, on, on having peace in the middle of, a, middle of a trial. And so remember here that, that Luke has written this narrative to Theophilus, to, to, a, to a Gentile. And so he's, he, in, in, the, in a way that a Gentile would have understood this, he would have, said, he would have been saying, look at Paul. Look how Paul, and again, possibly his companions, how, how he or they stand out compared to everybody else on board that ship. We'll see that again um, next week, Lord willing. And Paul reminds them of what he said earlier. How he said, if, if you'd listen to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. But Paul here isn't saying, see, I told you so. You should have listened to me. What he's saying here is, you didn't listen to me last time, listen to me now. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Paul genuinely cares for the people on board the ship, and so does his God. 
Dennis Johnson says, infinitely more reliable than Paul's prior experience at sea, however, was the promise of the God to whom Paul belonged and a new revelation brought by God's angel enabled Paul to bring courage and hope to his despairing shipmates. Paul says, this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now this is the only place that we're told in Acts that an angel had spoken, an angel of God had appeared to Paul instead of, instead of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We see repeatedly in, in Acts that Lord Jesus Christ appears to Paul and, and even, even later in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's praying directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here, remember, is addressing a largely pagan audience. And so he refers to God as the God that he worships and the God to whom he belongs. Paul belongs to God. Brothers and sisters, all Christians belong to God. And everyone belongs to God as, as being part of his creation, being made in his image. But as Christians, we doubly belong to God. We belong to God as his creation in his image, and we also belong to God as being purchased by God through the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you doubly belong to God every bit as much as the Apostle Paul doubly belongs to God. The Hutterberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And so he said to Paul, the angel of the Lord, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you, but we must run aground on some island. Again, this is not just Paul's wisdom as an experienced sailor. This is the word of God. Again, as I mentioned earlier, this is related directly to the Lord's promise. Initially in 1921, the, the original promise to Paul. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia saying, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The Spirit had testified to him that he would do this. And then in Acts 23, 11, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to me in Rome. Remember, this took place as the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Paul after his trial before the Jews. And then the next morning, remember, they plotted to, to ambush and to kill him. But the Lord in his providence let, let Paul's nephew in on what was about to happen. And so he, the Lord was able to, to, through this providence, to intervene and to spare Paul's life as the Lord provided 470 Roman soldiers as an escort to get to Caesarea from Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul 
is as safe on this ship in the middle of the storm as he was escorted by those 470 Roman soldiers. Because nothing could thwart God's will for Paul. Nothing could, could break God's promise or overrule God's promise to Paul. Now again, as we see this in the, in the context of how it would have been understood by a Gentile reader at that time, they would have read um, Acts 27 and 28, as we'll, we'll see in a, uh, next week or possibly the following week, meaning that, that, that God was, was not merely on Paul's side, but that he was innocent of any crime. Because otherwise, the miraculous rescue of, of Paul and his passengers wouldn't have happened. So, so in, in the way that this is a testimony, in delivering Paul, again, not from the, the storm, but through the storm, and delivering not just Paul, but, but all his companions, it's, it's like, in this point, it's, it's God's seal upon Paul. That Paul is not doing what the Jews have charged him with, of, of desecrating the, the temple, and of denying God's will and God's law but the God is for him. And so this deliverance points to the fact that divine justice is showing Paul to be innocent, not guilty of, of this particular crime. Again, not that Paul was not guilty of anything, but that he was not guilty of, of, of this. And again, the same thing happens in, in chapter 28 when he's bit by a serpent. They say, well, hang on, he's been rescued from the sea and now, now a poisonous viper bites him. What was this guy done? But then God delivers him from that viper. Recognizes, Paul himself testifies that he wasn't guilty of, of all charges. He calls himself, and not, and, and not wrongly, the chief of sinners because of, of, of his involvement and his, his approval in, in persecuting and even killing Christians. We need to recognize that, that we aren't innocent either. But as Paul we also are counted innocent, counted not guilty because of Christ's substitutionary death and the imputation of his righteousness. Listen carefully, though. God's promise to Paul here in this passage is not a personal promise to us that he would deliver us from every storm. However, it is a promise more generally that God will bring us home to our final destination to be with him forever. We must not rip God's word out of its context to make it mean whatever we want it to mean based on our personal circumstances. We need to interpret everything through the Lord Jesus Christ and through authorial intent to understand how it, it applies personally to us. This was a testimony, again, that Paul was innocent of the charges that were wrongly made against him. And God will do that for us, not because we are, are innocent of, of, of anything, but because we are declared innocent of all charges, even of those charges that were rightly made against us. And the promise here specifically is, is, is that, they will, that they will be delivered and that they must come ashore on, on what on Paul says, on some island. Now, as we're going to see, from Paul's perspective, and, and the perspective of the sailors, this was some island. 
But when you, but we know, as we see in, in chapter 28, that this, is, this island is Malta. And that this tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean, it, it's, like, it's, it's like finding a needle in the haystack. But God directs this ship through the storm all the way to Malta for many reasons. For many reasons. Whereas we'll see in chapter 28 specifically to glorify God in Malta, among the, the natives on Malta. Paul has a divine appointment on Malta. God is sending Paul to Malta. So again, we need to, to make sure that, that when we look at a passage like this, you know, it's like, it's like Jeremiah 29, 11, that, that the Lord has said, I've, I've promised to, um, let's just go there for a second. This is, this is an aside. This is for free. 29, 11. I have used this in this way. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. But look at the verse before it. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back from this place. So if you're going to apply this, you can say, God will deliver you from your 70 years in Babylon. No, this was written as a specific people, to a specific people. At a specific time. Yes, this applies to us, but it only applies to us through authorial intent, we need to understand in its original context what it means and how it applies to us in Christ Jesus. The Bible is, is not like a horoscope that you're free to apply any way you want. The, the Word of God is, is written and it needs to be understood in its specific context for its specific people. And it applies only to us in, in, in these, these, these promises, these individual specific promises only apply to us through Christ Jesus, according to the authorial intent of, of how it was originally meant. So the first bad theology that I addressed earlier was, was not to use a passage like this as a promise that the Lord will spare you from some particular calamity or trial. Okay? I don't want to belabor this point too much, but, but it's, it's not, we must not take the passage out of context and make an unbiblical personal application. Just because Paul was rescued by God this time doesn't mean the Lord will rescue you from this particular trial that you were experiencing. He won't even rescue Paul from all trials. Paul is going to be martyred not many years after this took place. There is no guarantee that your life will be spared in the storms of life. That trial that you were experiencing may take your life. You're not going to get out of this, alive, this life alive. Right? To those who, who would say that, again, it's tied to the prosperity gospel, that, that if, if you are experiencing health trials, it means you don't have enough faith. That The scriptures don't say that. If you're experiencing trials, it, it means, quite often, it means that you're actually walking with God, that, that God uses the trials of your life to, to discipline you as a child. And if the atonement meant that, that, that in this life that will be promised, 
that there'd be no, no disease would touch us, then none of us would die. But all of us, if, if the Lord tarries, all of us at some point will get sick of some disease and we will die. I've said before, healing, physical healing is under the atonement, but not yet. Not yet. We will not experience the victory over these things until the return of the Lord. So, so don't take this passage to, to, as a personal promise say that God is going to deliver you from whatever it is you're experiencing in, the, in, the, in this life. He will, but maybe he will deliver you through your death. The second bad theology, again, it's related, is to draw the conclusion that trials mean that, that God is, is punishing someone. Right? That, that was how, the, again, that's how the Romans understood this. And, and Gentiles thought that, that when, when, when Paul's experiencing trials like this, it must mean that, that he was, was under God's judgment. Again, especially when he gets bitten by a, a viper in, in chapter 28. We need to understand that, that God does not punish Christians. Right? God does not punish Christians. Our punishment was put on Jesus Christ. However, God does discipline us as his sons and daughters. This is Hebrews 12. The, the Lord chastens those that he loves. But we need to be very, very careful in, in your own life, or especially in the lives of those around you, to conclude that because they're going through some specific trial, that, that means because they're, they're, that, that, that God is even disciplining them. Right? We, we must not be like like Job's counselors. Who blame Job for some secret sin. As Christians, we can trust that whatever it is, whatever it is we're experiencing, that God will use it to shape us and to mold us and to make, it more, make us more like Jesus Christ. There's no sense here whatsoever that Paul has done the wrong thing. You know, we, we could think of Jonah. Right? The storm came with Jonah because Jonah had done the wrong thing. And God sent the storm and God sent the fish to get Jonah back on track. Well, in this case, God sent the storm to bring Paul to his appointed destination at the appointed time. This storm comes because Paul is obeying God's plan. Again, we're going to see that even more clearly in chapter 28. And through it all, Paul is an exemplary for witness for Jesus Christ as he trusts in the Lord's faithfulness in word and deed. Remember, is Paul saying this? The storm is still raging all around him. Right? There wasn't a sudden hush so that Paul could not speak. No, he's standing up in the middle of the storm, perhaps leaning on the gunnel like I had to, and, and more so, but, but he is standing up in the midst of this storm. This, he is showing himself to be at peace in this storm because he is at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he recognizes that the Lord Jesus Christ, as we sang, he's, his voice, he still knows. He still knows, he still rules the winds and the waves every bit as much as he did on the storm in the boat as Jesus was asleep in the boat. 
And the danger that, that, we, that we enter when we, when we hit the storms of life is, is like Peter. When, remember when, when Jesus, or Peter said to Jesus, okay, if it's really you, bid me to come out on the, and stand on the waves. And I don't know it's you. And so Peter steps out onto the sea and walks on the water. But what happens to Peter? When he saw the wind and the waves, he took his eyes off Jesus Christ and immediately began to sink. And then the Lord Jesus' hand was there to pull him out of the water. It's so easy and it is such a temptation in life when we experience storms. Again, whether it's a storm at sea or when we feel we're at sea. To look at the circumstances and to take our eyes off of God, off of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul here is the epitome of peace in the storm. Again, this is not, as I say every week, this is not a, a dare to be like Paul. This is follow Paul as he followed Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful here when we, when we look at a passage like this and we see that, that, that Paul has promised that, that all of, of, the, um, that, that all of the, the ship, Paul's shipmates were spared. Again, this is, this is related to the, to the, the first and the second um, theological danger. We, we can't take this as an allegory, right? To say that, okay, this, this means that, that all those 276 people on that boat got saved. There's no indication that, that any of them well, I guess 273, um, because we know that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were Christians, but that the rest of the, 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 rest of the, the shipmates, that they, that they came to faith in Christ. All this means is that, is that, that, that Paul was there in, in God's grace, and that in God's grace and, and God's promise to Paul that he, he would get to Rome, that they would be delivered alive as well. And I hope maybe some of them did come to faith, but we have no indication that they, that they came off the ship anything less than pagans. Paul says again to them, take heart, for I have faith in God that will be exactly as I have been told. And again, we've seen this before. Here the, here the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit, actually the angel of the Lord, uh, appeared to Paul to tell this. And Paul says, it's going to be exactly as I've been told. We can have confidence that, that all of the promises of God that are truly ours in Christ Jesus will take place exactly as they have been told. So here we have Paul in the middle of a storm and his anchor is holding fast. His anchor is holding fast. In the 1689 Baptist Confession, chapter 17, we talked about this during Sunday school this morning, that though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they should never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which they are fastened upon. Again, nothing, nothing, not even storms at sea can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Again, life's roughest, roughest seas prove the strength of our anchors. God often does not deliver us from the storm. He often delivers us through the storm. You will reach God's intended destination at God's appointed time. And quite often the storms of life are exactly what God will use to get you there. 
My grandfather's favorite hymn, one that, that sadly is not in many modern hymnals, tells this story. We have an anchor. Maybe you're familiar with it. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain? Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And for all of us, one day, when our eyes behold through the gathering night, the city of gold, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms of life all past evermore. And all of that is true for us because of Jesus Christ, our anchor, your anchor. One day our storms will be over forever. The Lord will, pay, will safely pilot us home to glory. Until that day and forevermore, your anchor, your only anchor, and your only hope is anchored in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the fact that you are our anchor. You are the rock and we are anchored to you through the power of your Holy Spirit. We are sealed for the inheritance that is ours in you. Heavenly Father, you elected us before the foundation of the world and you are preserving us through your faithfulness, all the way to the end. Triune God, we marvel that the entire Godhead is working not just to save us, but to preserve us. And so through your sovereignty and your love and your covenant, we're confident that you will bring us home safe at last. Lord, haste the day. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.